0: Welcome back, and I hope you were able to encourage a couple people in these few minutes as we transition to our next part of the service, which is the reading of God's Word and the preaching of God's Word. I want to ask for those of you who still have your phones on hand to, to close the messaging apps and now to pull out your Bible apps. And uh, for those of you who like to read your Bibles with a hard copy, you can take those out at this point as well. To help us with the reading of God's Word, we have Erica, and she will tell us which passage we're looking
1: at today. Our reading today is from Mark 7, 1-23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, welcome everyone to uh, one of the more uh, scrambly live stream services we've had. Uh, You may have been able to tell that uh, very recently just before we went on live stream with you our sound started making some strange popping noises uh, one of our cameras left us not sure where they went on vacation probably they took a flight uh, we've had live stream issues with YouTube so this has been one of the scrambliest mornings ever but if uh, and those of you who are technologically nerdy you may have noticed we've changed the camera angle because I asked them look just above my head what do you see You see a screen there for projecting. We have been in renovations all week, getting ready to uh, re-enter live services and welcome you back. And part of it is people have asked that we try and have a bulletin-free environment as much as possible. We've been doing that, but that has meant we've had to disconnect and reconnect, and that's why you're getting some of these technical issues. But we thank you for being here. We're continuing our series in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 7. Now, sooner or later in your life, this has happened, almost surely, or will happen. A conversation that will go something like this. But why? Why should I do that, Daddy? <laughs> Answer? Because I'm the parent, and I know better, and you're the child. That's why. Uh, we've all heard some version of this conversation. It might be with Mommy, it might be with Daddy, it might have been us saying it, it might be us responding to it. But many times in our lives we've heard this, it begins our childhood, and what Jesus tells us here is that kind of conversation actually never really ends. At the root of our present cultural conversation is actually this exact issue, these age-old questions. Who gets to set the rules? Who gets to define what is right, what is wrong, what is good and not good, what is tolerant and intolerant? These are essentially the same questions we have had since we were children and now that we're parents, some of us. These are the questions Jesus is addressing here in this series of conversations about what it means to be clean and unclean, what it means to be spiritually acceptable to God. And Jesus says here in this passage two things. One, who you think sets the rules reveals who you are. Two. Two. Who actually sets the rules reveals who Jesus is. Who you think sets the rules reveals who you are. Who actually sets the rules reveals who Jesus is. Let's look at those two. Firstly, who we think sets the rules. Now, to really understand this, actually to understand the rest of the passage, you need to take off your clothes, (laughs) take off your 21st century modern sensibilities, and put on 1st century Jewish sandals, as it were, you're Jewish. And at the core of your identity, some, some of the things that make you distinct are these. Firstly, you are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, there are ways to express this love that distinctly set you out as one of God's people two that are particularly relevant to this one is firstly priests who enter into meeting with god in either the tent of meeting or the tabernacle are to wash their hands to purify themselves to enter into an encounter with the holy one that's from exodus chapter 30 verses 18 to 21 second distinctive marker And this is for all Jewish people. Certain foods are to be avoided. There are dietary laws written in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus and Deuteronomy. To show your distinctive loyalty to God as one of God's covenant people, you don't eat certain things, including pork. Now, you put those two together, the call to love God with all you've got and the call to do specific commandments, and you get this passage from Deuteronomy. This day the Lord commands you to do these commands. You shall therefore be careful to do them, these commands, with all your heart and with all your soul. Inward love. Outward expressions of love. That's being Jewish. Now, put yourself in the room with Jesus. Here's our Jewish religious leaders are talking to Jesus, and they're challenging because some of his people have not washed their hands. Big deal. They're not priests. They're not going into the temple. But you see, this is what happens all the time. The Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, the rabbinical scholars, etc., and the scribes had said, well, if you really want to show how devoted you are, let's not just have priests wash their hands for certain ritualistic moments. Let has, let's have everyone wash their hands every time they eat. That will extend, broaden, and really show your devotion to God by what you do. And by the way, it shows others your devotion to God. Okay, now we've set the stage. Let's enter the room. Let's be there with Jesus. This rabbi comes comes with his disciples, people who are training maybe to be rabbis, and some of them don't wash their hands before the meal. Not all, but some don't. And it gets awkward. It gets What are we supposed to do here? The the usual things we do as religious people aren't done. I I remember once I was fairly new as a pastor and I'd forgotten to say grace before I started eating with people and the whole room got silent. The pastor didn't say grace? Like people literally hardly could eat. It's that kind of awkward. And so they challenged Jesus. Why aren't you people washing? Why aren't they washing? Why aren't they showing their devotion to God? Why aren't they showing their I'm a person who loves God-ness? And Jesus throws it right back in their faces. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, he says. As it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah twenty-nine, thirteen: This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They teach as doctrines of God the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God to hold to the traditions of men. What is Jesus saying? We've done the great exchange. We exchange what God said for what we've said. Now they're confused. In their mind, these hand-washing rules were simply an extension of the great scriptural principle. It, it's not an abrogation of it. It's not a denial of it. But Jesus then proceeds to show them exactly how it is turned into a replacement. He uses sarcasm. You have a fine way. And then he goes into this practice that is widespread called Corbin. Corbin is dedicating your property to God to show your devotion. But by the time of Jesus, it was being used for a lot of other reasons, including if you were in relational strife or wanted to personally pursue your own wealth you could often dedicate your property as Corbin so you didn't have to share it with other family members in fact in the Mishnah there's a great example of an adult son not wanting to help his parents so he dedicates his whole property as Corbin (laughs) and then as his son becomes an adult and wants to get married on the property he's stuck because he wants grandpa to be there at the wedding but he's already ruled him out so he goes to the courts to try and figure his way out and they don't let him sorry man You have dedicated this to God. Your father, the grandfather of the groom, cannot show up. What is Jesus doing here? He's showing us the true motivations of our heart. He's showing us that we want to exchange God's ways with our own. That we want to wrest control of the driver's seat of our life from God and take it into our own hands. We want the right to to name for ourselves To define for ourselves what is spiritual, what is not. What is acceptable and what is not. How to judge others. How to evaluate ourselves. Who's in control when that happens? Not God. You are. So we take God's commands. We twist them. We reinterpret them. We expand on them for our own purposes. And it ends up getting us what we want. Being used and manipulated for our purposes. Now we can rank people, criticize people, measure where we're at, take control. Now, no matter how religious you are, no matter how spiritual you are, you have this in your heart. We all want the driver's seat. This is the essence of sin. Taking control back from God. Now. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, if you're just part of the general culture, you probably recognize that our culture actually happily and fairly self-consciously does this. Charles Taylor, one of the leading philosophers of our day in his uh, book, A Secular Age, describes the modern secular approach this way. Everyone has the right to develop their own form of life and meaning, grounded in their own sense of what they think is really important or has value. No one else can or should try to dictate that content. Biologist, professor of biology, author and blogger Jerry Coyne puts it even more bluntly cosmology gives us not one iota of evidence for God or purpose. Secular see a universe without apparent purpose and realize we must forge our own purpose. What Jesus is saying here. What secular people have said and done openly and what religious people have done far more subtly is that we're all in the same boat. We all twist and turn and reconfigure life so that we're ultimately in control. It's not just, by the way, the Jewish people. Christians have done that since the beginning of the church age. One great example, of course, the Reformation. The Reformation in the 1500s came about partly because a monk named Martin Luther looked at what was going on and was horrified. He looked in his Bible and he found no evidence of the doctrine of purgatory. But the doctrine of purgatory had been developed To help people become more holy, it was threatening even Christians with a temporary kind of judgment place or hell. And then a new twist was added to it in the 1500s. Historians tell us it was partly motivated by the need to finance the building of the great St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Something called indulgences. If you paid money, you could get your relatives out of that purgatory more quickly. It was called indulgences. And it was that practice, not found anywhere in God's commands, but added to it, that sparked Luther and helped catalyze the Reformation. You see, when we add to, or reconfigure, or outright deny what God says about how to obey Him, we do three things that are deadly. Firstly, we rebel against God. We rebel against God, we make ourselves the real God, the one who controls things. This is the nature of humanity. This is the nature of us. We fight God, dodge him, avoid him, twist his words, refuse to submit. Subtly or not, Romans 1, 21 says it so clearly, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, which means obeying what he said, Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, We become rebels. Secondly, as Jesus says here, we become hypocrites. We become people whose words mean nothing because our practice is different from our words. The watching world laughs and sneers at us. Thirdly, when we do this as Christians... We bind the conscience of other people by adding to them rules that God has not given and saying we will define your spirituality by how you obey these rules. They're not God's rules. They're my rules. But I'm going to bind you and make you feel guilty. I'm going to make you feel like you're rebelling against God if you don't follow my rules. That's exactly what was happening at this lunch. Implications. If you're here and you're a Christian, ask yourself how subtly... Do I bend the scriptures to get what I want? How often do I twist or avoid or evade the commands of God? Because I want control. I want pleasure. I want power. I want influence. I want financial security. Do we honor God with our lips, our observable behavior, or with our life? When no one is watching, what are we thinking? What are we wishing for? What are we doing? Now, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, you you don't believe God exists. You're like the, the marketing executive I met several years ago who told me, I'm gambling that God doesn't exist, and when this life ends, I don't get to meet him, so there's no reckoning. That's what you're doing. You're playing GameStop with God you're betting that this ride of gathering enough people together and denying the reality of God will work. But unlike the GameStop gambit, which is working somewhat against hedge funds, no gambit works against the ultimate reality of God. Your life will end. And Hebrews 9 says, you will face God. Just as it is is appointed, says Hebrews 9, 27, for us to die once and after that comes judgment. You will meet God. God is God. You cannot change reality by simply joining together. God is no hedge fund. God will not be beaten. He will not go away. He will not be short squeezed. He will be faced. Are you ready? Secondly, the one who actually sets the rules tells us who Jesus is. We don't set the rules. God does. But in this second series of conversations that Jesus has, not with the religious leaders, but this time with the crowd and then in Q&A with the disciples, Jesus says something differently. He says it's not what goes into someone which defiles them. You don't have to worry about unclean foods. It's what comes out our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes, which lead to our actions. That's what defile us. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, immorality, envy, sensuality, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, if you're a typical Toronto person, this doesn't seem that off to you. It seems pretty actually bland because, of course, in our day, in our culture, what we desire, what we think, what we value in our hearts, these things are far better markers in our minds for who we are and who we should be. Our, our present culture is built on this idea of the supremacy of our authentic desires. If we're feeling trapped in our marriage, our culture says, your feelings of being trapped Are warrant enough for you to leave the marriage. Your feelings of being trapped in your body are warrant enough for all kinds of things. Those inner feelings should reign supreme. They should end our marriages. They should allow us to change our genders, to figure out how we should parent, how we should conduct relationships. But you will note here, Jesus is not actually affirming those modern sensibilities. Take a look at some of the things that Jesus said are wrong. Firstly, coveting and envy. These two things are what our whole society builds our economy upon. We envy other people's bodies. We buy into their diets and go into fitness clubs. We covet other people's clothing, so we buy the same clothes. Most of our fashion, cosme- cosmetic, and fitness industries and anti-aging industries are all built on coveting and envy. But Jesus calls those two things evil. Jesus calls sleeping with someone who's not your married spouse, sexual immorality. He, he's no modern thinker. Uh, but nor is Jesus affirming traditional religious sensibilities either. He said clearly, I, I, I don't care if you people haven't missed a, a religious service in the last 12 months. I don't care how much time you spend washing your hands. If your heart, and by heart here, he means the Jewish idea of the center of your will, your desires, your thinking, that thing which animates your emotions and your decisions. If your heart is filled with evil thoughts and desire, it's not your behavior that matters. It's just hypocrisy. And then Mark, the author, slips in a little editorial note. And we almost all miss it. I actually read two commentaries that said, you know, we don't have time to talk about it. It doesn't seem that important. Here it is. Jesus is saying this. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, what we just talked about, but his stomach, and therefore is expelled? Editorial comment by the writer Mark. Thus he declared all foods clean. He what? He declared all foods clean. Okay, put your Jewish clothes back on. Put those sandals back on. Get into your robe. Think about this statement. Jesus just declared that all the food laws in the Old Testament, all the ones that say eat this and don't, they're gone. They're abrogated. Who dares? Who dares to take Torah, the great Bible of the Jewish people, and say, I get to rewrite it? Who gets the right to declare what is clean and unclean? Who's the judge of all things? Who's the one who says this is clean and this isn't clean? In the Jewish mindset, you're sitting there, you go, only God gets the right to define it, and he's already done it. And Jesus is saying, right there, I get to redefine it. Scandalous. Who gets the right? Who gets the right to redefine what it means to be a good follower of God, a good Jewish person? For thousands of years, the Jewish people had marked themselves out by what they did and did not eat. This showed themselves to be a peculiar people. This was the core of their identity. And Jesus, by this one statement, is saying, That's not how you measure who's really part of the people of God. He's crushing their whole identity as a people. This is breathtaking, audacious authority. Who gets the right? To rewrite this book. Only God. Who gets the right to declare what is clean and unclean? Only God. Who gets the right to declare who is the people of God? Only God. Do you see in this little editorial comment what's happening? But now catch the irony. Here's the the hilarious thing. Okay? The subtle interplay of the idea of, of hypocrisy and arrogance. He has just accused, Jesus has just accused all these people of taking the commandments of God and turning them into the commands of men. Now here's a man, a rabbi, saying, by the way, all these commands of God that are written in the book, I'm not expanding on them. I'm saying they're of no force and effect anymore. He is deliberately rewriting them. You see the irony? Hey, you guys, you're rewriting this by subtly, quote unquote, expanding. And then he says, I get the right to rewrite it. It is shocking. And if you read the Greek, the word isn't, he declared all foods clean. The actual Greek says, cleansing all foods. His word didn't declare it. His word effected it. All those foods were clean. Think about that. He spoke and it was. This this kind of language is the language of Genesis chapter 1. When God spoke, let there be light, and it was. The declaring was the effecting. That is God-like power. Uh, If you're here and you're kind of a theology nerd like, like I am, think about the astonishingly high Christology that has slipped into this tense confrontation with Jewish leaders. Most of us miss it. We start reading this list that Jesus names, and they're important, we re- and we, we feel the practical impact of it. I'm guilty of envy. I'm guilty of coveting. I struggle in my thought life with sexual immorality. All of these things zing us. And we miss the main thing that is being pointed out here. Jesus is the one who gets to set the rules because Jesus is God. 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 Now it's interesting that these statements that Jesus makes about what does defile you, his list starts with evil thoughts, and it ends with foolishness. Now think about that, foolishness. These are bookends, general categories, and they're more specific things. A lot of Ten Commandments are in there. But these bookends are interesting because the word foolishness does not sound evil to you and me. But the Bible defines foolishness differently than you and me. The fool and foolishness is different because it's someone who defies God deliberately, who does not admit that God exists. The fool says in his heart, Psalm 14.1, there is no God. And then describes what a fool is. He says they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. Did you hear that? That's what a fool is. There's none who does good. So how many of us are fools? Yeah. Yeah. All of us. This list makes all of us guilty of being fools. We all covet. We're all envious. We all struggle with sexual purity. We all struggle with all kinds of thoughts and desires that are so selfish. There's none who does good. Haven't you fantasized about things that you don't want to admit? Of course you have. Therefore, catch this. You and me, we're all unclean. We're all unclean. We're all defiled by the definition that Jesus just gave. And what about Jesus, the one who authored these definitions? Remember, he just said, I'm the one who declares what is clean and unclean. Jesus can look at you and me. Those of us who are unclean and say, you're clean. Because that's the whole point of the gospel. Don't you see? We're all sinners. Rebels who want control. Not wanting to trust or love or depend upon God, but take it for ourselves. And Jesus, the one who defines clean and unclean, looks at us and sees unclean, but one word from him, and you'll be totally clean. And You have only to ask this question, will he clean me? And most of you know the answer. He will, because he went to the cross to clean you and me. He himself was perfectly clean. He did no wrong. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He did the commands of God in the Old Testament with pure love. He was cleanness personified. Everything God asked him to do, he did with a grateful, joyful heart. But because he was God, he was holy, he was set apart, he was sinless. Separated from sinners, undefiled, innocent of all wrong. But because he was God become flesh and fully human, he obeyed his father as every human should and no human did until he came. And he who was clean went to death on a cross. And at death he took the defilement, the wrong, the sin, the guilt, the horror of you And me and our desire for control and autonomy from God. He took the defilement of that and he put it upon himself. The clean one voluntarily became unclean with your uncleanness and mine. He endured God's hatred of our rebellion. He paid the debt of our defilement. He was clean, became unclean. So you could be clean before his father and in his own eyes. And then, after dying on the cross and taking that guilt, he rose from the dead to prove beyond doubt that he really was the God who became a man. He really has the authority to call things clean and make them so. He really did pay the price for defiling evil, so it no longer needs to be paid. He rose to display the worth of his death. He rose to confirm the innocence of, Of his life. He rose to prove the holiness. Of himself. He rose to declare the truth. Of his grace. He rose to defeat the power of sin. He rose to begin the reign of God. He rose to announce the reality of God. And he rose to make the unclean clean. And he's here now with us. Wherever you are right now. Ready to declare you clean clean forever, clean indeed. But you, you must come to him. You must come to him not as a teacher or as a rabbi, but as the author of your life and the Lord of your heart. I will make you clean, but you must give me that heart and help. let me help you undefile it. You see, the one who has authority to cleanse you or judge you must be approached in that way as Christ the Lord, as God the Son, as King of kings, as Lord of lords, and not in any other way. So wherever you are, final applications, come to him in repentance, wanting to be clean. If you do not want to give up running your own life, don't come to him. If you don't want to give up nursing your own sins, don't come to him. He does not receive hypocrites at his royal throne of grace. He does not receive rebels at his royal throne of holiness. If you come to him broken by your own sin, shaken by your own defilement, knowing your own need of forgiveness and grace, then he opens wide his arms and says, Come, I am your compassionate Savior I am your substitute. I will declare you clean. Wherever you are, come to him in repentance. Second application, whomever you are, stop evaluating and living this life of self-constructed spirituality. Stop evaluating other people's moral worthiness based on their outer behavior. God judges their heart, not you. We should not judge their behavior, but try and get to know their heart. Get to know people well before you judge them. Hear their stories, know where they come from, know what they've faced before you render any judgment. Know their heart before you judge their actions. Secondly, stop evaluating your own personality, your own, excuse me, performance and spirituality based on what you yourself are doing. Ask yourself instead what do I love? What do I desire? Those are the questions. Finally, remember, dirty and defiled we all are, but he can make the unclean clean, for he is the author of our cleanness. He is the substitute who has captured our sin and paid for it that we need so no longer. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us to see That it is in our hearts to try and make the rules. And it reveals our sin when we do that. And secondly, help us realize that it is indeed Jesus who makes the rules. Who determines who is clean and unclean. But in so doing, he's willing to make us clean by becoming sin for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. All right, we have time for some questions. They're rolling in. I'm going to only answer a few. I'm sorry. There are over 10. I'll try and answer a few. Uh, Can words or ideas spoken to us from the outside defile us? Yes and no. Um, They can catalyze inner desires. They can trigger them, and those things can defile us. So they can have a certain causal relation to it. So, but... It's still the inner desires and how you respond to those things that tells the tale. If Jesus redefined the food laws, why did God give them to us in the first place? Why are there clean and unclean foods at all? Very long question about why God in redemptive history gave Israel these distinctive markers. He wanted to set apart for himself uh, a people, and he gave them all kinds of rules for up until the time of Jesus, the final renewing moment in all of history that would mark themselves out. Why did he make them these external things? I am not exactly sure. I'll ask him with you. We'll go together and ask him when we're there. Last one. Uh, Are there any common rules or traditions that Christians tend to impose on other Christians that we should not traditions we should watch out for. I think that's an always evolving one. I'll give you an example of, of, of one that has changed over time. Christians and alcohol. Christians were behind the prohibition movement because of uh, general dissolution of society in the late 1890s, early 1900s. They joined the prohibition movement and drove it in the early 1900s through the 1920s when prohibition existed in North America. It was primarily driven by Christian churches. That characterized, that residual ban of all alcoholic beverages by any Christian as part of the prohibition movement lingered on easily into the 1980s. When I first became a Christian in the 1980s, I was told you can't drink, you're a Christian. And I was confused because I was reading about Jesus making water into wine and uh, Paul telling Timothy to put a little wine into his stomach. But then when I realized the historical way that we had done that, that uh, is an example of how we do evolve these things. So it happens all the time. Uh, we're, we're trying to do, some people are trying to impose certain uh, political positions on people right now to gauge their spirituality. Some cultural uh, approaches, what do you think about X or Y or this? This is defining your spirituality. All these things are very dangerous uh, extensions of what God has actually said and applications of what God has said rather than what God has said. And there's a great danger in oftentimes our subtle desire to follow God more purely. But you see, that's about us. Yeah. That's, the, that's what animates most of this. Our desire to perform better. But you see, it's, that's performance-oriented spirituality. The gospel is about God's grace to people who can never perform. The gospel is about God's mercy to people who are defiled. And until we see ourselves that way and stop the performance treadmill, we're going to continually be doing these things. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time we've had. I pray that you would help us to give our hearts anew to you in repentance, to give our hearts anew to you in gratitude, to recognize our sinful tendencies, how, no matter how religious or irreligious we are. And to give control of our lives, our heart back to you. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.